This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, looking this morning at verses 18 through 31. Exodus 4, 18 through 31. While you're turning there, I do want to encourage you to return this evening for our evening service, to pray together and study God's Word together, studying uh, the book of Hebrews on Sunday night, so I hope you'll plan to join us then. This morning, we're looking at Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've seen how Moses uh, has been talking to the Lord there in the Midianite wilderness, the burning bush, and how the Lord uh, has called Moses to return to Egypt to deliver people of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. And so we pick up with verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to you for your word, for these verses that we have just read from the scriptures, uh, for the faithful account they give of the history they describe, uh, but Father, even more than that, for the faithful account they give of who you are and what you have done 
for the salvation of your people. And Father, we pray as we study these words that our hearts would be lifted up in worship of you, even as we think about these things. And pray, Father, that you would teach us by your word and by your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the Boy Scouts of America. Now, some of you were or are involved in Scouts, others of you are not, but even for those of you who are not, virtually everyone knows the Boy Scout motto, which is, Be Prepared. Be prepared. Good advice. Uh, whether you're going into the woods for an overnight camp out or whether you're going into a boardroom to make a presentation. It's good advice whether you're going into a Sunday school classroom to teach a lesson or whether you're going into a school classroom to take a test. Sorry for the reminder, kids, but it is upon us. Be prepared. The great British preacher of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on the fact that uh, in preaching, the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary, yet also said, I have seen that the sermons that the Holy Spirit seems to use most are the ones on which I have worked the hardest. Be prepared. Always good advice. A good motto to live by. Well, it's especially important to be prepared when you happen to be going into Egypt to challenge Pharaoh, the ruler of the mightiest nation on earth, to lead Israel out of their bondage. And that's precisely what the Lord has called Moses to do. In his conversation with Moses at the burning bush, he has shot down all of Moses' objections. He has answered all of his concerns, and he promises... Moses, the assistance of his brother Aaron in this task to which he has called him to serve as his spokesman, since Aaron, by the Lord's own description, can speak well. But you don't just from there march into Pharaoh's palace. There are a number of things that have to happen in between by way of preparation for this momentous undertaking that will uh, take up the next sizable number of chapters in the book of Exodus. And so this passage that we're looking at today is is sort of an interlude, a time between Moses' calling and the time when he carries out that calling, a time of preparation both on Moses' part, but also on the Lord's part, as he's getting Moses ready to do this task he has called him to do. Well, what we're going to do today is look at four uh, acts of preparation uh, either on Moses' part or the Lord's part, that, that set the stage for what is to follow and what really becomes uh, some of the primary actions of the book of Exodus. The first has to do with family blessing, with Moses uh, seeking leave to depart for this next phase of his life. As I've said before, you really can think of Moses' life in three sections or segments. The first 40 years... Uh, of, of his Egyptian life, uh, which kind of ends when he tries to uh, deliver Israel by killing the Egyptian, and he flees to Midian. Well, that sets the stage for the next 40 years of his life, the time in the Midianite wilderness where he becomes part of Jethro's household 
by virtue of marrying his daughter Zipporah, becoming part of the household, tending the sheep, and so forth. But now we're at the turning part for the last 40 years of Moses' life, and that has to do with his carrying out this call to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. Well, this is the turning point, and he doesn't just leave. You don't just stay in somebody's home and work with them for 40 years and walk off without saying goodbye. In fact, uh, you don't really, in that kind of society, walk off without gaining permission, walk off without gaining a blessing to do so. And that's exactly what we see in verses 18 through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Now, notice a couple things. One thing Moses does not say is, the Lord appeared to me in a burning bush. Uh, is Moses being deceptive here? No, he's, being, he's showing discretion and not telling everything. Uh, is, is this really the reason for going back? Well, it's, it's sort of an idiom. Uh, it's basically a way of saying, let me go back to Egypt and see how things are with my people there in Egypt. After all, it's been four decades. Uh, that's not an unreasonable request. And so we, we learn that Jethro says to Moses, go in peace, go in shalom. In other words, he says to Moses, not just I, I begrudgingly let you go, okay, but uh, after all, this isn't Pharaoh he's dealing with. This is his father-in-law. But he says, go, go in peace. Go with my blessing. Absolutely. Go and see how your people are doing in Egypt. Now, Moses may have told him other things. Again, uh, Hebrew narrative tends to be fairly sparse with details, but it's worth noting, at least as what's written down here, there's no mention of the bush, of the Lord's call, any of that, but simply a desire to go back and see how things are with his people in Israel. And uh, verse 19, it's kind of interesting. The Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Now, was Moses starting to waver now that he was away from the burning bush, now that he was back in his, whole, in, in his household wondering, you know, did, I just imagine the whole thing. The Lord seems to, again, kind of get his foot in his back a little bit. Go ahead and go. The men who are seeking your life are dead. Now, if you know the gospel accounts, you may pick up on a, on a similarity. Remember when Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus fled to Egypt, ironically, the Lord tells them they can return back uh, to Canaan because the people who are seeking your life are dead. Ironically, Jesus and Joseph and Mary leave Egypt to return to the land of Canaan from Egypt because those Herod and others seeking his life were dead. Well, here uh, Moses is assured he can return to Egypt for Pharaoh uh, and any others who were aware of his murder of the Egyptian uh, are, are gone. They're dead. That's no longer a threat to, to Moses. And so some assurance from the Lord there in verse 20, Moses took his wife and his sons, uh, notice the plural, uh, apparently by this time he had not only Gershom, but Eliezer, second son, and had them ride on a donkey, and he went back to the land of Egypt. And uh, last but not least in importance, Moses took the staff of God in his hand, that simple emblem of the authority that he had for this mission and the power of God that was behind him 
in his apparent weakness, the power of God that was with him to carry this thing out. And so that's the first instance of preparation, is taking leave of Jethro's home, his household, where Moses, where his family had been for 40 years. That's a long time. Think about it. Think back 40 years. Think of being in one place, doing one thing for that long a period of time. This was a major change. This was uh, uprooting his family, uh, who, for them, Egypt was a foreign land. For Moses, it had probably gotten pretty foreign by this time. But most importantly, he went with the authority of God, and he went after seeking and gaining the blessing of his father-in-law, uh, the head of that home of which Moses was a part, broadly speaking, uh, to return and go back and serve the Lord. The second preparation, uh, act of preparation that we see here is in verses 21 through 23, and that's divine assurance. Now, the Lord has already assured Moses that those seeking his life are dead, but then here we see some very important information that the Lord gives to Moses, because Moses still, I'm sure, is feeling very much the weight of his concerns, his fears, uh, his anxiety about all that's going to happen. You know, he's, he's obeying, he's heading back, but not sure what to expect. Well, the Lord tells him here in verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. Now, he'd given these miracles to demonstrate to Israel that what he said was true. Well, now the Lord says, keep those same signs in mind to perform them before Pharaoh. When you need to do that. But notice what the Lord says. Even while you're doing these signs, I will harden his heart. Now, that introduces a major theme of the next ten chapters or so. And that is the condition of Pharaoh's heart. And it's interesting, you'll notice as we study these next chapters, that the, the scriptures go back and forth between, on the one hand, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. And on the other hand, it'll say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, that, that's sort of a mysterious thing, the interaction of the human heart and the Lord's sovereignty over it. But it's also worth noting that Pharaoh is without excuse. Pharaoh can't say, well, Lord, you hardened my heart. How could I respond? Remember Romans 9. You know, the pot can't say to the potter, why did you make me this way? Uh, we'll talk about that more as we get into the actual interaction. But the Lord says right up front, you give him those signs, but... I'm going to harden his heart. And the result of that is so that he will not let the people go. Moses is probably thinking, great. You know, it's kind of like Isaiah called to uh, declare the word of the Lord to a people who hearing don't hear and seeing don't see, you know, so that they don't, they don't repent. Uh, Moses may feel kind of like Isaiah did long afterwards that he was sent on a mission of futility. Well, notice what the Lord says. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea of being children of God, of God as our Heavenly Father, is there. And in fact, here is an instance of it. Uh, at least corporately, Israel as a whole is my firstborn son. Uh, he, he is to me as a son, and he's like the firstborn. He has the place of preeminence, the place of honor. Uh, one reason I think that the Old Testament tends to avoid that is to avoid any kind of pagan ideas about, uh, about gods and the sons of the gods and so forth 
that might otherwise contaminate Israel's thinking about who they are in their relationship to God. Obviously, the New Testament brings us out much more. For example, earlier we prayed the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus teaches us to, to address God as our Father, our Father, yes, who is in heaven, uh, who's glorious and magnificent and transcendent and holy, and yet is our heavenly Father, our Father who loves us. We are, like, we are his children. Well, notice what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. You know, this isn't, this isn't political. This is personal. You are holding my firstborn son captive. And I say, let him go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh. So immediately you get a sense of the intensity of this confrontation that is about to take place. And of course, knowing the rest of the story, as I trust most of you probably do, uh, you know that's what it comes down to, to God killing Pharaoh's firstborn and the firstborn of all the households of Egypt. And so there's this assurance here in terms of knowing what to expect. Yes, Pharaoh will see the signs, but the Lord says, I'm going to harden his heart, which, by the way, Yes, Pharaoh hardens his heart, but it does emphasize the Lord's sovereignty over the heart. Proverbs says, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like a river wherever he wants. That's exactly what we see with Pharaoh. Ultimately, Pharaoh is not making the call here. The Lord is at work through him and has sway over his heart. There's a third instance here, and this is a very strange one, of preparation for all that is uh, about to take place. And it has to do with covenant faithfulness in verses 24, 25, 26. They're on the way. They're obeying the Lord. And verse 24 says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. A couple of questions here. Number one is, who is the him? Moses is not named in these verses. The ESV in verse 25 says, Touched Moses' feet. But as they indicate in the footnote, the Hebrew actually just says his feet. Whose feet? Some would argue this is all about Gershom, or perhaps the second son, Eliezer. Uh, But since the whole context is about Moses, that would seem a little bit foreign. I think the ESV and pretty much most translations are correct to have this being about Moses. Uh, The second thing that comes to mind is, why would the Lord want to put him to death? I mean, here he's just had this conversation with him, a long discussion. Moses has secured Jethro's blessing. He's left. He's on his way to Egypt in in obedience, and the Lord comes and wants to kill him. Why? Notice what happens in verses 25 and 26. This gives us a clue why the Lord wanted to put him to death. By the way, how do we know? Well, was he fighting off the death angel? Was he he, uh, deathly sick? We don't know. We do know that it became apparent to Moses and it became apparent to Zipporah that Moses was on the verge of death. And so Zipporah took a flint, flint knife. Uh, Metal knives were around at this time, but maybe flint because it could be sharper, maybe flint because that's what they had. Uh, Took a flint knife, took a flint, and cut off her son's foreskin. She performs a circumcision on their son. Uh, which obviously had not been done at this point, touched Moses' feet with it 
and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Verse 26, So he let him alone. Apparently, the reason the Lord was coming after Moses is Moses had failed to apply the covenant sign of circumcision to his son. Now, remember, the Lord gave Abraham that sign, Genesis 17. So this is the sign. He didn't even say this is the sign of it. He said, this is my covenant with you. So closely is the sign and the covenant uh, are the sign and the covenant identified with each other. And this, that you, Abraham, are to bear this sign and your, your infant sons, your children after you. But apparently, the covenant sign was not applied here. And the Lord was prepared to kill Moses for his faithlessness in the covenant. And Zipporah has to do the deed. Now, why did he not been circumcised? Well, maybe, especially if this was their second son, Eliezer, um, maybe Zipporah had seen what was involved the first go-round and said, no, I can't let you do that to my second child. We don't know. We don't know. We just don't know. That's strictly speculation why this had not been done. But for whatever reason, the Lord was holding Moses accountable And now, apparently, he's in no condition to do it. Zipporah winds up doing it, and in the process saves his life. Which, by the way, you'll notice, this is another time that Moses was spared by women. Remember remember his his own mother, his sister Miriam, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, even before that, the midwives. Here Moses' life is saved by his own wife, who performs this act of circumcision and uh, there's some question as to her reaction. Some see her speaking to him as, as being in, in kindly tones. You know, here, Moses, I almost, you know, almost lost you, and I've gained you again through the shedding of blood in this operation. You just don't get the sense that Zipporah was real happy, though. And in fact, some suggest when she touched his feet with it, in the blood of it, uh, that it, she didn't touch it, she threw it at his feet said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Yes, I've regained you, but I've had to do this to to keep you with me. Uh, And the end of verse 26 says, it was then she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. You get the sense she was not happy with this, whatever the reason. Uh, However, it does point us back to the importance of the covenant sign. I like the way one, one commentator puts it. He said, Moses can argue, pout, whine, and hold his breath about going to Egypt. In other words, throw a tantrum. And God will deal patiently with him. But circumcision is another matter. Doesn't this say something about how importantly God sees the covenant sign? The importance that he places upon it that he's willing to kill Moses right then and there because of his refusal to apply the covenant sign to his child. Now, we can talk about it in general terms as we come into the New Testament, the importance of baptism. Is baptism essential to salvation? No. Is baptism important? Yes. And, as we believe that the baptism is a covenant sign to be applied to our children as it is to the adult believer who comes to Christ, Does this not say something about the importance of baptizing our children and the displeasure it gives God when we fail to apply the covenant sign? You see, our view is not just that, well, the Bible allows us to baptize our children. Our view is the Bible requires us to baptize our children. Now, in this church, if you disagree with that and good conscience could not do that, we allow for that. We don't want you to violate your conscience in any way. 
But it's important to know where we're coming from in the scriptures, that we don't see this as allowed. We see it as required, and it is somewhat uh, frightening to see how vehement the Lord was with Moses when he had failed to carry out the covenant sign. In Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, we read, In Jesus also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The connection there, both circumcision and baptism, to the reality to which they point in Christ Jesus. So it says something to us about the importance of the covenant sign, but it also says something to us about the importance of atonement. You know, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. One of the purposes of that Old Testament sign of the covenant was it was bloody. There was blood involved. Maybe the touching of Moses' feet was to put the blood of that on him, that he was covered now, whereas before he was exposed to the wrath of God. We say, well, what about baptism? There's no blood involved in that. Well, no, there's not, because the blood was Jesus, the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Ultimately, that's what both covenant signs point to, is the Lord's provision of a Savior whose blood was shed for us and whose blood cleanses and washes us clean of our sins. So this is a mysterious event. We may not be able to be certain about the details, but we get the general picture very Clearly, And as Moses was going to deliver the Lord's firstborn son, he has to be sure that he himself is right with his heavenly father through the covenant. The last thing we see here by way of preparation, we've seen the the family blessing, we've seen divine assurance, we've seen covenant faithfulness, and then we see brotherly support. Uh, Verse 27 kind of goes away from Moses, the Lord said to Aaron, and apparently this had happened earlier, because remember um, earlier in chapter 4, the Lord says Moses says to Moses, Aaron, your brother is on his way. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. So the Lord obviously had spoken this earlier, go to the wilderness to meet Moses. And so Aaron goes, and he meets him at the mountain of God, kisses him in greeting. And notice, very different from Jethro, When Moses meets Aaron, verse 28, he told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak, all the signs he had commanded him to do. So Moses meets up with Aaron. This is the Lord promised him, Aaron's help and support, companionship in this venture. And together now they go and meet with the leaders of Israel. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words the Lord had spoken to Moses, did the signs in the sight of the people, And Moses fears, to the contrary, the people believed. They listened. When they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed to their heads and worshipped. Not quite what Moses was fearing, was it? Uh, We don't know how many of the signs they had to perform. We do read that they did it, actually that Aaron did the signs. At least the first two, says signs plural, so they did... Uh, number one and two, uh, the serpent becoming a snake, or a staff becoming a snake, rather, and the uh, hand becoming leprous. We don't know if they had to take water from the Nile and pour it on the ground or not. Uh, but at any rate, the, the reception on the part of the, the Israelite leaders was, was that of belief. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people and seen their affliction, 
must have seemed totally otherwise. Must have seemed like the Lord didn't know, the Lord didn't care. But they've heard now that he does, that he's aware of what they're suffering, and he's going to do something about it. They bowed their heads with and, and worshipped. Could be the idea they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves on the ground. And so after all of this preparation, they're back in Egypt. The people of Israel not only believe them, but they begin to worship God who has seen and understood their suffering. And the passage ends with that. It ends with worship. And that's appropriate. Because any interaction we have with God should end with worship. He is the God who knows our suffering. He is a glorious God. He is the great I am of the burning bush. He is the God who rules the human heart. He is the God who loves us the way a good father loves his child. He is the God who demands justice and then provides what he requires, a perfect sacrifice for sin. He is the God who gives signs. He is the God who works miracles. He is the God who has kept all of his promises of salvation for Israel. And for us, the Israel of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Israel knows the right response to such a God. It is to bow down and it is to worship. It's not to say, what took you so long? It's not to say, we thought you'd never do anything. But it is to bow down and worship. They knew that. How about you? Let's pray. Father, we do bow. We worship you. Lord, forgive us when we doubt you. Forgive us when we grumble and complain against you. Forgive us when we are slow to obey you. Father, we thank you for your patience. But Lord, we also thank you for the blessings and the provisions that are ours through your covenant with us in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the cleansing of those sins of grumbling and complaining and disobedience and doubt. Thank you, Father, for providing for us in Jesus all the righteousness that we need to stand before you. All the righteousness we need to be with you in glory forever. Father, we pray that you would forgive us our sins, but we also pray that you would give us grace to turn from our sins and to obey you. And Father, we thank you that as with Moses... To this point, uh, so many things that we fear, so many things that keep us from following you, never materialize. We thank you for that. We know ultimately, Father, the victory is yours over all things, over all people, over all circumstances in Christ Jesus. And we give thanks to you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.